to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Something I absolutely love is following the work of past guests of this show, many of whom become friends. Back on episode 36 of Classical Ideas, I had a wonderful conversation on a life spent in Chan Buddhism with Guo Gu, a Buddhist teacher, scholar, and writer who grew up in the 1980s New York City punk rock scene. It is my pleasure to welcome Guogu back on the show for episode 177, where we discuss some of the many remarkable things he has been up to since. Guogu is the founder of the Tallahassee Chan Center and is also the guiding teacher for the Western Dharma Teacher Training Course at the Chan Meditation Center in New York and the Dharma Drum Lineage. He is one of the late Master Shang Yen's senior and closest disciples and assisted him in leading intensive retreats throughout the United States, Europe, and Asia. Guogu has edited and translated a number of Master Shang Yen's books from Chinese to English. He is also a professor of Buddhism and East Asian religions at Florida State University in Tallahassee. This conversation focuses on two topics. First, we discuss Guogu's recent leadership in relation to Dharma Relief. Dharma Relief is the first platform that brings together different Buddhist traditions, teachers, and practitioners to support and create sustainable living in North America. One of the amazing projects Dharma Relief has undertaken this year is the purchase and distribution of PPE during the COVID-19 pandemic. Under Guogu's leadership, Dharma Relief has raised hundreds of thousands of dollars from thousands of donors, coordinated volunteers across all of North America, and provided PPE to over 170 hospitals from Puerto Rico to the U.S. to Canada. The second part of our conversation discusses Guogu's forthcoming book, The Essence of Chan, A Life and Practice According to the Teachings of Bodhidharma coming out October 25th, 2020, from Shambhala Publications. If you are interested in some more of his mainstream work, you can check out his writing for Lion's Roar magazine. His pieces, You Are Already Enlightened, Exposing, Embracing, Responding, and Letting Go, from Lion's Roar, are particularly fantastic, in my opinion. His book, Passing Through the Gateless Barrier, from Shambhala Press, is also quite a fantastic journey. It was a real pleasure having Guogu back on the show for episode 177 after his appearance on episode 36. I cannot believe over 140 episodes have passed. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Guogu on his return visit to Classical Ideas. Guogu, welcome back to Classical Ideas. Thank you, Greg your invitation. It is so wonderful to have you back. Before we dive into the conversation about your new book, I would love to know about some of the work that you've been doing with an organization called Dharma Relief during the COVID-19 pandemic. You've been doing some incredible work, and I am just curious to hear about your progress with the organization, what it does, and how you have been a service to your community in the last several months. Thank you. So Dharma Relief is a network 
a platform to bring together Dharma teachers, centers from various traditions. <clears throat> and it's something lacking in North America, at least, like a platform where teachers come together. Mm. Sure, in the past, there have been events episodically, you know, people come together and so on, conferences, platforms, but not like a sustained network. So when the pandemic started, you know, Dharma teacher friends, I know everyone is doing their own thing at their local center. And I felt that the power and the effect is so limited because every one of us just limited to our own center and you know, try to uh, bring some peace of mind to people. But there was nothing really material that people were actually doing. There was mm -hmm. nothing you can do. So it's kind of like this helplessness. And uh, Dharma Drone Mountain in New York have uh, uh, began to collect money to purchase masks, mm -hmm. also on a small scale, just our branch in New York City. Right? So, and because under the Dharma Drone Mountain umbrella, all the chapters and branches are mostly Chinese community. So this effort was basically within the Chinese and they had, some people had contact with mainland China producers, manufacturers, and we have branch over there. So people on the ground who can actually check the quality, check the paperwork for FDA approved, you know, all that stuff. Mm. So it was, but so I approached Donald Trump and said, hey, we, we can do that. Let's expand it to all Dharma centers. I mean, everyone need help. This is something that we can all come together and do. And they're just so overwhelmed with the paperwork and all that that we can't <laughs> undertake that project. So I said, I'll do it. They had limited contact with Western Dharma centers anyway. So I said, I'll do it. So I gather my students, small handful of students, build a website, contact Shambhala, Lions War, which through, through those venues I published. Do you guys want to sponsor this? <laughs> said, yes, because I know they had mailing list. Yeah. They had the media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So contacted uh, Dharma teachers from different traditions. Rings Aizen. Soto, Tibetan, Vipassana, and everyone thought this is exactly what we should be doing. They want to do it. It's something that they want to do, but they couldn't because they didn't have the right contact you know, on the ground. And there was something narrowly defined, very practical, and cut through all the red tape, all the politics. Narrowly defined means we aim to fill the lacuna between U.S. manufacturers refashioning themselves, like General Motors, like car companies, mm -hmm. refashioning themselves to make masks between the time they can start producing them 
and this lag time where the U.S. is not importing masks from mainland China, which produced over 50% of all the medical supplies on earth mm. prior to COVID-19. So it's been doing this, right? Yeah. But U.S., China, trade war, anyway, sure. U.S. is not doing that. So China, UK, China, all, everyone, everywhere else except basically North America, right? Mm. So this lag time, we were figuring maybe two months, maybe a month and a half mm -hmm. before the U.S. can catch up to produce, mass produce PPEs, you know, personal pr protective gear, equipment, including masks and so on. So it was short, narrowly defined, small project. We can all come together. We can actually do something, raise funds and buy. We had the whole thing set up. You know, instead of mass shipments, we ship individual boxes from the manufacturer company directly. Then that will cut out um, taxes. Mm. See? Um, and all the uh, kind of checking points. You know? So we, we, we started doing that. And we aimed also very small. Let's raise $100,000. We got that in two days. <laughs> so we thought, we thought, okay. Um, Let's see, 300,000. We got that in a week. I was like, all right, let's 500,000, you know. So we were able to purchase what we got eventually over 600,000K, uh, 600K, 600,000 over. <laughs> we got over 1.2 million masks. And when we were at the peak of this momentum, we um, got the attention of humanitarian organizations, MedShare and Flexport. They wanted to co-sponsor us. They ran out of masks. Flexport is a shipping, uh, humanitarian shipping company, nonprofit. MedShare is a nonprofit. Reese recycling excess medical supply throughout North America. Mainly the US, but they also ship to Canada as well. So we partnered with them to have free shipment because we were paying UPS, which is an arm and a leg. Sure, know, sure. in a whole box. Hundreds of hospitals in US, each one with their own label. And so we did that. That was successful, and then um, <clears throat> the U.S. continued to have this um, implicit conflict with things coming out of mainland China by um, preventing the PPEs from coming in. <clears throat> Extra care, of course, there's reason for that. They want to make sure it's not full of coronavirus, right? Sure. Extra care and Chinese had to, you know, have extra care. So everything delayed. Thunderstorm. Yeah. So long story short, we were able to uh, just last, just a few days ago, we see the final, final shipment 
we had to go through sea instead of air eventually for that amount. <clears throat> and um, so that's where we're at. Uh, but then that spurred on, you know, this pandemic led to other things as, as racism, anti-racism, a whole one after another, people are getting killed, murdered, police brutality. You know, uh, in the midst of this pandemic, and uh, that network that we have already established uh, with the help of uh, some of my students, we thought, okay, we gotta utilize this network, Dharma Relief. as a platform to bring together teachers to address social issues. So Dharma Relief 2 was born. Mm. ER2, which we are in the process. This is not so clear cut as DR1. Yeah. Cut through politics, cut through all the red tape. Racism is a very complicated, yeah. <laughs> to say the yeah. least. And, um, there's a long history of problems and there's so many different angles and it's politicized, highly politicized from standpoint of individual life, from standpoint of institutional structures. But we live in samsara and samsara is the arena of nirvana, of yes. awakening. So this is where we diving head first. Well, when we're, so, you know, DR1's board members, group of Dharma teachers, except one, all of them are white. Mm. <laughs> so DR2 cannot be led by a group of white Dharma teachers. Yeah. All have the same consensus. Otherwise, we will be perceived as hijacking, you know, hijacking the Black Lives Matter again. Sure. So we started contacting Black Dharma teachers, leaders, you know, for several years, Lion Swore and uh, other Buddhist organizations have been hosting what is called the gathering. All the Black Dharma teachers, leaders, practitioners come together, you know, um, have meetings and sharings and retreat so i got the name list went down one by one so we have a group of black dharma teachers and um, leaders some of them are not teachers say like two are pastors mm -hmm. uh, who are practicing buddhist sure and some are therapists not teachers but practicing buddhist you know so got a group so we're in the process of figuring out in what way are we able to still align with the mission of Dharma Relief, which is bring Dharma teachers and centers together to address racism or whatever social phenomena in an efficacious way, narrowly defined, something practical, cutting through politics. And we thought about healing. Healing, trauma resiliency workshop. Mm. 
diversity workshop. So ER2 is becoming. We're still having a meeting this Thursday, so we don't know exactly how it's going to go. We're taking the time to educate ourselves, to understand the history, the sociological dimensions, the personal stories of um, racism in the midst of all this, but so far it's shaping towards you know, DR2 raising funds and then using the funds to offer trainings for Dharma teachers and there'll be a process. Trauma resiliency workshop. Some of these workshops, you can get a license from it. Like you, you actually get some kind of um, like a credential. Acronym, credential acronym behind your name, like a comma, you know. Oh, sweet. Uh, SRS, yeah. So it's a long process. Training is not like one, one workshop, it's like eight weeks or, or longer, months. Right? Sure. So diversity training, communication skill training. So all the all the qualifications that will allow a Dharma teachers when they return to their centers to begin providing, and some of them have done a great job so far, providing a safe space for the BIPOC community to come and practice Dharma and feel they don't have to explain to these white people, you know, all, all kinds of things. You're pretty exhausted doing that. So Absolutely. A place, where, a place where they feel safe. Yeah. So why? So when you think about what, what would make them feel safe? You can't really rely on them reading books and educating themselves. So they have to kind of go through the training by professionals. So it's kind of like an expedient means, if you will, skillful, skillful means. Sure. A skill set to train them in this quality, which is not traditionally part of Buddhist training. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're trained to you know, meditate, insight, understand Buddhist teachings, integrate in daily life. But some of the subtleties of implicit biases and discriminations, and the institutional structures, we're not trained to be like sociologists to see through, cut through the veil and see through the institutional uh, things. So this will be a kind of a skillful means, like a Bodhisattva skillful means tr training so they can you know, do that. And then they'll continue as a platform um, after the training, doing the training to provide uh, Zoom online dialogues, you know, sharings of stories, and even workshops. Once they get the licensing, they can actually do this online hosting different stuff so dr2 will play a prominent role in that okay so you're envisioning this being like a national maybe a global organization of dharma teachers connected all over the world right yes so far i mean i'm i'm, I'm all for effectiveness yeah and that's why i'm i'm not that ambitious like a global just like dr1 North America, <laughs> you know, Bodhi Bhikkhu, yeah. my, my friend, Global Relief, that's global, you know, 
addressing things, but they're not doing something on the level of kind of what's happening here. So, so this, this fills this void. That sounds absolutely amazing. Uh, do you have like a timeline for launching these trainings? What is the scope of this project looking like on your end, like logistically? So far, we are still in the process of designing and working with one another because many of these teachers don't know one another. Sure, the DR1 teachers, you know, we work together. The DR2, so it needs to be time. Yeah. Time to build trust. In the meantime, maybe in a, in a month or two, we'll have the DR2 website. Hopefully, the agenda will be set. So we have, and then we can build a website, right? DR2 website, and then we can fundraise. Yeah. In the meantime, provide informational videos, talks, something hosting that, like a clearinghouse. Sure. And raise funds. And then 2021, start to have these workshops. Hopefully we'll have enough funds. I mean, it would be great if we can train, say, 108, like a nice Buddhist number. I love 100, it. 108 Dharma teachers, the first wave to go through these training. And these trainings are expensive, you know, so... Sure. Well, and I also love the way you pointed out that, you know, people go into teaching in general, just teaching, like you're a teacher, I'm a teacher, you teach at a university, but as well as in your Chan Center. And, you know, you people go into teaching because they care about other people. But when we don't have specific kinds of trainings, we lack in our ability to reach all of our students. So to me, training these folks who want to become Dharma teachers so that they can more effectively reach everybody who wants to learn the Dharma is only going to open those teachings up to a much wider audience, which I think is super important and interesting on your part as well. It's very important work because if you statistically examine you know, Western Dharma teachers, you know, putting aside ethnic dharma centers for example all vietnamese people mm -hmm. all chinese people all japanese people um, putting aside those just like West, westernized dharma centers i haven't do the math i haven't done the math but i'm guessing a very very high percentage of that are run by white dharma teachers right so it's not that we want to change the dynamics. We want to make sure everyone, every center, all the teachers have the skill set to be sensitive, open, receptive, friendly. At least within Buddha Dharma in the West, we will take the lead to provide more equitable, safe space for. BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color, uh, practitioners. Awesome. I mean, this sounds like it could reshape the future of Dharma teaching in North America to me. Yeah. It sounds that big. Yes. And you're doing this on top of, you know, your, your center, 
your day-to-day job and this is like almost like a a third career that you have uh, accidentally stumbled into it seems just purely because you felt like this is something that needs to exist what needs to be done what can be done what kind of principle Uh, something that needs to be done we may not be able to do we just do what we can yeah we don't um, quibble about results. We just do what we can, even if we are able to do very little. In this process of learning, of interacting, sharing, it's already very, very valuable for everyone, for everyone on board. And I just want to be clear, I'm not doing this alone. I have a group of students who are like bodhisattvas awesome (laughs) and there are you know i'm 52 they're younger they're like the millennials now these people's energy i'm telling you (laughs) their ability technologically you know they're way surpassed yeah what i'm able to do so it is because of all of them and their skill set and their practice it's like uh it's like back in the it's like back whenever uh you know crack kids in new york city would make their own flyers and put on their own shows you know what i mean yeah no i drew some of those flyers awesome all the all the the different cvgv shows you know when agnostic from want to have a show even when we're not on the bill i used to draw it you know (laughs) I love it. I love it. Do you A7. have any of those? Do you have any of those originals still hanging out in some in some folders? I don't, I don't have the originals, but they're floating around um, on Facebook. My brother I love it. and you know other people, and they, they share it. You know, scan scan images of it. So cool. Well, Guogu, you also have a new book coming out. Um, you know, we last spoke in January of 2018 for Classical Ideas, episode number 36. And I am closing in on episode 200 here really soon. I've been at it ever since you and I last spoke. Um, and your new book, The Essence of Chan, A Guide to Life and Practice According to the Teachings of Bodhidharma, is coming out soon for, through Shambhala. Um, where were you in the process of putting together this book when we talked in January of 2018? You know, this is a reissue. Tell me more. This book came out first as an e-book because it stemmed from a series of talks and uh, transcribed, edited, polished. So it was short. Uh, I think a series of four or five talks at the Tallahassee Chance group. It wasn't even a center yet. So it came out in 2012. And uh, it, it, did, it did okay, you know. Um, and uh, by the request of many people, either contacting me or complaining to Shambhala <laughs> directly, they, they want paperback. I guess people are just used to putting something in their hands, you know. Yeah. So it's a reissue. Slight changes, tweak here, here and there. But basically, it's the same book with a new cover. And um, 
So when we spoke, uh, it was still an ebook. There was no plan. Yeah. Putting it out. And this just happened uh, last year. We thought yeah, maybe we should put it out as as a book. And um, so that's what happened. Gotcha. You uh you open the book. I was reading through it this past week. Um, you open the book with a discussion on the importance of cause and effect within Buddhist practice. Why did you uh, choose to start the book in such a manner with cause and effect leading the pages? You know, uh, that just came from my talk. Oh, good. And I began the series of talk with, I still, I still remember the talk was, must have been 2009, I think. I still remember it. I began a talk because it was a very young group, a group of small Chan practitioners. I didn't want to introduce these new practitioners. Here's an interesting part. We can expand that to Chan Zen practice in the West in general. I didn't want to introduce them. Buddhist doctrine, you know, on which the foundation of Chan was built in pre-modern time. So Chan is not separate from Buddhism. If you were to imagine visually, it would be like a pyramid. You know, fundamental Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, and Chan. So. This is a phenomenon that happened in China, by extension, Korea, Japan, Vietnam, different parts of East Asia. So the doctrine, the foundations are very important, but I don't want to introduce these new new practitioners, the whole load of Buddhist <laughs> doctrine and so on. But I want to choose the text that Build the very basic foundation, yeah. sufficient to begin the practice. Sure, sure. And that's why I chose that. So I began the series of talk with, you know, all things come together because of causes and conditions. All things have their repercussions as their effect. So between cause and effect. What brings the cause, what leads the cause to an effect are conditions. Conditions not there, it will never lead to an effect. Conditions are there, and it will lead to a particular kind of effect. Just like if you have a seed, cause. If you don't put water, the condition of water, sunlight, soil, it, yeah, it's a seed, it will never lead to an effect blossoming of flowers, right? Yeah. So, but if you have not enough water or too much water, too much sun, not enough sun. So whatever the conditions will shape the effect, it won't completely change. Like apple seed will not change to banana tree. You know, it, it's still basically apple tree, but maybe a weaker apple tree or a smaller or, or you know, very strong, you know, powerful tree. That, so it depends on conditions. That's what shapes things. And that's the genius of the Bodhidharma text. He spoke about you know, practice and awakening. 
basically. And all the conditions that must be there uh, to bring about the fruition of realizing our true nature, not something outside of us, just who we, who we truly are. You know? And uh, that is the four practices. So the text is about two entries, four practices. Entry by principle, entry through practice. And through practice, there are these four things. So that's, that's what the text is about. So just minimal teaching, doctrine, but essential cause and effect, cause and conditions. That's basically, if we could boil down the teaching on awakening and practice. So it, it was a, it's, it's a seminal text and it was um, the right time to do it. Yeah. How I wanted to relate this to the, the broader Zen community, the Chan Zen or you know, East Asian Buddhist community in the West is that a lot of times you can say I chose that text as a critique to Zen practice as, as popularly conceived in the, in the West. You know, people that pick up these Barnes and Noble books, Chan masters shouting, beating people, you know, crazy stuff, you know, out of context. They have this imagined idea what Zen practice is. Well, that's so Zen. Different yeah. Yeah. So I, I wanted to use this text to reinsert just the modicum, just the essential part of doctrine right back into Chan's Zen practice. Because of Chan's self-image, we're talking about pre-modern time, ancient time when he emerged, self-image as a, this is the four axioms, right? You asked this, uh, this um, before, it's a transmission outside of doctrine, not dependent on words and language, directly pointing to the mind, seeing oneself nature, becoming a Buddha. So that's a four chunk axiom, but this is built on the foundation of Mahayana Buddhism. Mahayana Buddhism is built on the foundation of fundamental Buddhist principles. So Chan is that little peak at the top, you see? But when this is, when people take these four axioms, literally, then they're actually divorcing themselves from the rich tradition of Buddha Dharma, you see? Mm. And literally, don't depend on words and language, no need to study the scriptures, any doctrine. So, so I wanted to re-inject that you know, into people's understanding of Zen and to place Chan Zen squarely within Buddha Dharma. Yeah. Our actions has repercussions. Yeah. If we need to get anywhere in life, in practice, we must understand the workings of causes and conditions. The condition, again, back to the analogy, apple seed, 
potential apple tree in between cause and effect conditions. So we need to learn how to recognize conditions, adapt to them, wait for them, and create the causes and conditions. See, so uh, so this this was a beautiful text, very short text, and the book was my commentary to the text. That is sufficient. You know, of course, there are lofty Buddhist teachings and doctrines and so on. But this one, sufficient to begin the, part, uh, uh, the path. Something, something that stands out to me about our first conversation is when we talked about you learning meditation when you were a very small boy. And I asked you for some advice on how to teach meditation to my then four-year-old daughter, who is now almost seven. And you write about something in this new book about that I've never considered before within Buddhism. And that is the notion of our original state of freedom and how we are almost seeking a return back to that original state of freedom through practice. Do I have that right? Because it really resonated with me and made me tie these two threads to our first conversation and this conversation as well. How did you tie it? It's not tied yet. It's, a, it, it's an uncertain, loose knot. And maybe if you explain to me if, I'm, if, I'm, if I have it right, maybe then I'll pull it tight. Okay. Well, this uh, very traditional Mahayana Buddhist teaching on intrinsic or original awakening is not an invention of John. It's, it's not... Um, what's popularly perceived temporarily, as if, you know, at one time we used to be this awakened self, but due to social conditioning, you know, all the stuff that we experienced, then we lost it, so we turned. So not in, a, not in a temporal sense that we return. It's right here, right now. So it's not in the past, it's in the present. And the meaning is that all the things that we have acquired, accumulated, you know, our conditioning and so on, patterns of thought, habit, tendencies, relaxations, they don't really define us. They've shaped us in a certain way and there is a real history to it. But we're so much more than that right now. So the analogy I have is, it's like a room with different furniture. Yes, there is the reality of different furniture in the room. There's a sofa, there's chairs, there's cushions, there's books, there's all kinds of furniture. Some dilapidated, just not so useful. Some is actually harmful. And some very useful furniture. Let's call them all furniture. So, yes, there's a real history to how the furniture got there. Mm. <laughs> No one has thrown this furniture in here. That's the karmic part. We have brought these furnitures in the room. But does that actually affect the spaciousness of the room? It doesn't matter if the room is cluttered or spick and span. The room is already spacious. 
So it's not a temporal sense. It's not that the room, you know, used to be spacious and now it isn't. You know, if you look superficially, it may be cluttered. The room may be cluttered. Yes, it isn't, right? But the potential and the very reason why it can be cluttered is because of the spaciousness, the openness. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and I'm going to, and I'm going to let that simmer a little bit as well when I'm thinking back on this conversation later on. Um, you know, earlier I, I mentioned your, our, our mutual friend, uh, Mato Moore. And in your book, you write about modern caricatures of Zen and Chan practice in the West. And I know that Mato has some very specific thoughts on the misconceptions and caricatures of Zen in the West. Do you care to comment on what you view as like some misconceptions uh, and state how your text may offer some additional thoughts on this ongoing conversation within Western Buddhism? Well, first of all, it is an ongoing process, conversation, if you will. So from that perspective, misconceptions, correct conceptions, it's a matter of perspectives. Mm, There's nothing really right or wrong, you know. You can't really skip stages. Like, for example, <clears throat> personal learning. Yeah, there are some smart ones that jump grades, second grade, jump to fifth grade, whatever. <laughs> but, but basically, you know, it's, you need a process, you see, from yeah. point A to point B. Right? So once you reach point B and you look back on all the points before, is that a mistake? No. Like your daughter, now, she, now she's seven, but before she's older, but even before that, when she didn't know how to walk, those mistakes, no, like, no the mistakes are the, actually the ingredients of how she learned how to walk. So from that perspective, it's actually, failures are the ingredients of success. Now she knows how to walk and run and jump. And you see what I'm saying? So there's all these meanderings. Sure. Historical meanderings, you know, like when Buddhism entered China, I'll get back to enter America later, but <laughs> enter China. They were translating the Buddha as the great immortal through the lens of Taoism. Mm. That's their reference. So their reference, their lens to look at, okay, this must be a great immortal from the West. <laughs> what does he have to teach? He teach meditation too, because in China, there were already in existence meditative, hermetic traditions, contemplation, long history. So when Buddhism came, it's like, wow, wait, let's check out their meditation system. So there's this blending, merging, and critiquing, and new shape Buddhism came, came out. So that's what we're witnessing here. So my first point is misconceptions, you know, the misconceptions, yes, but only from certain standpoint. Mm. So it's just the, the need is just to clarify standpoint. Yeah. It's like, a, it's like climbing, a, climbing a hill, Mount Viking. The vantage points, here's the thing about you know, standpoint. The, it's not <laughs> one standpoint. <laughs> you know, you're... The vista that you see, the horizon, changes as you climb. Mm. So you can only assess it 
It's not to say that something is harmful. It's it's okay. It's not it's not to say that. Yeah. The only way to do it is to clarify the standpoints, plural form, and assess the situations. What needs to be done? What can be done? From the perspective of getting back to Bodhidharma, cause and effect causes and conditions. Does this action potentially lead to suffering, harm as the effect? Or Mm. It may not be Buddha Dharma the way we knew it, but it's benefiting people. You, you see, yeah. like the mindfulness movement, mindfulness movement. Yeah. They take yeah. Buddhism and the technique, divorced it out of the ethical context of karma and causes and conditions, made it into a technique in social sciences. Right? medical field, psychology, social work, whatever. Now, so you assess it from the point of view of cause and effect. They decontextualize it, place it in another context. What context? Neuroscience. The effect of that, is that harmful for people or is it not? Hmm. So it led to, not harmful for people or not, also has a standpoint. Here's a standpoint, right? So, to what extent is it harmful? Right? To what extent is it, from what vantage point is it actually beneficial? Does it stray off so much that it's really harm? Or is it in a matter in the shades of gray that we can't really see? But so far, at least, it's actually popularizing Buddhism. Hmm. Or is it it's a medical field? The Buddhism is infiltrating. Buddhist teaching infiltrating mainstream culture, shifting, shaping consciousnesses. So some people may see that, and I know some teachers see that as just blasphemy. You know, it's just, it's not Buddha Dharma. But some other teachers see that as it's beneficial. It's a necessary step. Just like the Taoists when they encounter Buddhism. They think it's a Taoist practice, just you know, from those Indians in the West, you know, their version of it. And their great teacher is the great immortal. <laughs> they have our immortals, they have their immortals. So so they've turned and twisted and decontextualized and refabricated Buddhism through centuries. Mm. We're just witnessing this. So Medo, for example, critiques. Um, in his book, Christianity, you know, Christianization of Buddhism, or I, don't, I think I'm paraphrasing it wrong, or um, you know, you know, in that sense, bring different elements of that to Buddhism, and he wants to distinguish it. Right? And also, those atheists who are clearly kind of people that have left the camp, the Christian camp, and they're just. They just want to jump into Buddha Dharma. So both of these, you know, we have to assess. He has his positions, which are very good. It's all a matter of standpoints and cause and effect, causes and conditions. Yeah. 
something well, I maybe. Love, yeah, something yeah, I love uh, love reading uh, your book and his book. I've been reading them almost side by side recently, and uh, those those lines just ca- caught my attention as a way that those kind of works are linked, and I appreciated it as well. Yeah, you know, I think part of what he's trying to do, and um, part of what I'm trying to do, under is is this. In certain circumstances, we need to demarcate what is actually with the Dharma. But it's always circumstantial. So it depends on causes and conditions. The conditions in this context, okay, we need to carve out that no, Buddhism is not therapy. No, it's, it's not. Right? But in other contexts, mindfulness movement, go for it. Mm. You see? So it's Vantage points, context. So, in, he has a new book out, you know, but um, you can contact him about that. But, <laughs> but in his book about the Rings Eye Way, where he yeah. critiques, um, it's in a particular context that he's want to demarcate what is the Rings Eye Way, right? as opposed to what is the Soto Way, what is the Buddha Dharma, what is the Vipassana, what, what's Mindfulness, what, what, what's all that? So there's a purpose for it, see? Yeah. Uh, just as long as we're clear, we're clear what the author is trying to do, and his standpoint, and the context, then we will become like a fundamentalist. Yeah. Fundamentalist Buddhism. This is the way, because he says so in the book. It's always contextual, always contextual. Just keep that, keep that in mind. I love that. It's like a, um, a call to keep the, keep the mind open as well. Um, I originally found you because of music, which which you remember from our first conversation. Sure. Um, have you been, uh, just to close out today, I'm curious if you've been appreciating any music or any art uh, during the last few months. I know you've been extremely busy with Dharma Relief, but have you found any way to uh, take in any art or music or anything that you'd like to uh, talk about for a second? I've been listening to classical music, to be honest. Uh, classical piano music. Uh, and I enjoy that quite. Yeah. I'm a huge rock. I'm a huge Rachmaninoff person. Good, good, yeah. So you know, um, I haven't had much time to explore that you know, during this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, in my free time, you know, I drive or you know, groceries or sometime at home, I listen to subscribe actually to this channel uh, for classical piano. Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> I love it. Well, Guogu, it has been super fantastic to reconnect with you to hear about the amazing work you're doing with Dharma Relief 1 and your forthcoming Dharma Relief 2 as well as the upcoming release on a physical book for the essence of Chan through Shambhala. I'm really grateful to you for your time and your uh, consistent support of this show and your interest in appearing here and talking to the audience of listeners who who tune in. So um Thank you so much for uh, for everything that you've done for me for the last couple of years. Um, it means a lot. 
that you're willing to come back and hang out with me. Do you have a, a website or something that you would direct listeners to if they want to know more about the projects that you've mentioned today? Normal Relief One, there's a project. Uh, DR Two, we don't we're, we don't have a pro, we don't have a, a website yet. But uh, if you work to Google Normal Relief, you will see the work that we have done with the masks, PPEs, and. Um, the R2 website will come out soon enough. But the Tallahassee Chan Center, you can easily Google that. That will lead to our YouTube channel, Facebook, and so on. So there's a lot of, you know, one thing fascinating is uh, my students have been bugging me. Students not in Florida, but elsewhere. Because you know, they only come for intensive retreats once a year, twice a year. Yeah. We do these kind of online sittings. It was very fashionable. This is before COVID-19. Online sitting. I said, like, why would anyone want to sit in front of a camera of me sitting, a camera watching me sit? <laughs> it's just so self, self-referential to me. Why would anyone want to do that? So why does a lot of people do that? A lot of teachers do that. We can sit together. I'm like, sit together? Anyway, I got convinced into doing that <laughs> because of COVID-19 mm-hmm. all Dharma centers activities went on so as a result of that there are sittings online there are talks online and all recorded so our YouTube channel has a lot of that awesome to explore. great well I will put some links for the listeners in the show notes Gwogu, thank you so much for coming back. It's been a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you. Great both for the opportunity. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.